On today's episode, we have a couple of set-at-Christmas movies, starting with Die Hard from 1988 and While You Were Sleeping from 1995. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. Today on the show, like I said, we've got some set at Christmas movies that I'm very excited to talk about. You know, I like to cover these kinds of movies because to just actually sit and watch Christmas movies and take notes is really dull for me. Like, I... I often put on Christmas movies and I don't even pay attention to them. So, I mean, I wanted to watch some movies that were like regular movies, but set at Christmas. So there you go. All right. So starting off with Die Hard, released on July 20th, 1988, directed by John McTiernan. And he also did Predator, which was previously covered on this podcast. He did The Thomas Crown Affair, the remake with Pierce Brosnan, which is a really solid movie, honestly. Like, I fucking love that movie. I think it's great. I mean, I've never seen the original at all, but I really enjoy the remake a lot. And then he also did The Hunt for Red October, which is a fucking stellar movie, honestly. You should check that one out if you haven't seen it already. It's a very fucking good movie. I really love a lot about it. For the writers, we have Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza, and this was based on the 1979 novel Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. For producers, we have Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver, and for the score, we have composer Michael Kamen. And then with the cast, we have Bruce Willis, who plays John McClane. And, you know, he was in a lot of movies, and I've talked about him previously on this podcast. But he was in the other four Die Hard movies, the sequels to this movie, starting with Die Hard 2, Die Harder, which is a decent follow-up. It gets a little too referential to the first movie. I don't really care for that in a lot of sequels. And then there's Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is a fucking great movie. I really love it. It doesn't even really have to be a sequel to this movie at all. It could just stand on its own. It's that good. Then there's Live Free or Die Hard, which came out quite a few years after the original sequels came out. And that one was okay. It wasn't bad. It's It was just a little more modern, so it was it was different, you know? And then he came out with A Good Day to Die Hard, which was by far the worst of the entire series, you know? It was just, I don't know what it was about it. It, it just didn't work for me as well. So next up, we have Alan Rickman, who plays Hans Gruber, and he was in the Harry Potter movies as Severus Snape, of course. I couldn't actually get into the Harry Potter movies. Like, I don't dislike Harry Potter, and I've read, like, three or four of the books, I think, but I I just... The movies, I could really take them or leave them. I didn't really give a shit about them. He was also in Love Actually, which, if you haven't already heard about it, it'll be coming around the corner, the episode where I cover that with my sister and my brother-in-law, and we really 
get down and dirty talking about Love Actually. One of the movies that I want to check out with Alan Rickman is Quigley Down Under, and I've tried to start the movie a few times, and I just haven't been in the mood for it, and I really want to watch it, you know? I really want to hopefully enjoy it. So next up, we have Bonnie Bedelia, who plays Holly Gennaro McLean. Then there's Reginald Vell Johnson, who plays Sergeant Al Powell, and he was on the show Family Matters, which you might remember as having Steve Urkel as a character. Paul Gleason plays Deputy Chief Dwayne T. Robinson of the Los Angeles Police Department, and he was the vice principal in The Breakfast Club, and that was a solid fucking movie. I still enjoy that to this day. It's very good. So for casting notes, the role of John McClane was offered to various major stars, including Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Burt Reynolds, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson, Don Johnson, Richard Dean Anderson, Paul Newman, James Caan, and Al Pacino. And then we have Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, Lawrence Fishburne, and Wesley Snipes were all considered for the role of Hans Gruber. For a plot synopsis, we have a New York police officer on holiday in Los Angeles becomes the only person to evade being taken hostage in a terrorist takeover of his wife's company's office building. Alright, let's dive right into this fucking plot, guys. I fucking love this one. John McClane comes to L.A. from New York, and, you know, his wife now lives in L.A., but he was taking care of business in New York still as a police officer. John has a limo waiting for him at the airport, and he rides in the front seat with the limo driver named Argyle, who kindly offers to wait at their destination, which is called the Nakatomi Plaza. He goes to his wife Holly's office Christmas party, and we kind of meet some of her co-workers. And before John gets there, Holly gives a pregnant woman her blessing for her to drink, and I just can't imagine that Holly is qualified to make that call. It's probably actually a really bad choice, but I'm not a doctor. John arrives, and we meet this dipshit Ellis who asked out Holly earlier and is doing lines of coke in an empty office, and he gets caught by John and Holly's boss as they do a little tour, and Ellis is just destined to be such a fucking winner in this movie. I just don't get people. Everyone knows that drugs are to be used behind locked doors only when you're outside of the comfort of your own home. So, sometime between Holly and John being happy to see each other and then... You know, them wanting to kill each other, basically. John takes off his shoes as part of this advice that a man gave him on the plane about his anxiety over flying. I guess it's like, to calm your nerves, you make fists with your toes on a carpet, you know, and and walk around like that. It sounds like the kind of thing that people would rave about and would hype up how much it actually works, but it wouldn't actually work for me. So there is some bad news. Unfortunately, this is not an uneventful movie about a boring office Christmas party. So we do see this group of terrorists take over the building, starting with the lobby downstairs, followed by this Christmas party, which is the only place where there are any people in the whole tower. It's really cool how they take it all over. It's so methodically done and stuff. We do find out eventually that these terrorists are led by one Hans Gruber, portrayed by Alan Rickman, and... He is 
easily one of the greatest villains ever to grace the silver screen. So John frantically recognizes that it's too late for everyone else, and he's the only one that manages to get away, but it's important to note that he has no shoes on, in case you were thinking footwear wouldn't play a factor here. It's honestly such a great setup for an incredible action movie. So we've got five to ten bad guys or so with automatic weapons that have taken over the huge office tower, 20 to 30 hostages on one floor that I would, you know, I would estimate that's probably about how many there are. And then we have John, who is literally the only person who is not a terrorist or a captive in the building, and he's a cop, so he's got those instincts. And at least initially, no one outside the building knows what's going on because they cut the phone lines. So John is desperately trying to figure out what the fuck he can even do, and I don't know what it is about this movie, but I feel like him being trapped plus the hostages, it all just automatically makes the stakes higher and thus everything is more awesome. Gruber, you know, our lead terrorist and main bad guy, takes Holly's boss Takagi into a room away from the other hostages, and it turns out the terrorists are there to get $640 million in bearer bonds from the vault downstairs. And if you're wondering, hey, Brandon, what the fuck is a bearer bond? Then guess what? I googled it for you. So fun fact, bearer bonds are a bond or debt security issued by a business entity, such as a corporation or a government. As a bearer instrument, it differs from the more common types of investment securities in that it is unregistered, no records are kept of the owner, or the transactions involving ownership. So it's basically untraceable is what what you're supposed to get from that. But I don't fully understand why they don't just use cash at that point. Like, I guess maybe it's more secure than cash. I don't know. I'm, I'm dumb about stuff like that. Gruber has an expert guy getting through the first several levels of the vault, but he warns Gruber that the last lock is not one that he can break. So we get a little bit of Gruber's eccentric personality, and considering this was Alan Rickman's first movie role, I'm just fucking in awe of him. So Gruber really wants the bearer bonds and is threatening to kill Takagi if he doesn't give him the codes to get into the vault. So naturally, when Takagi doesn't give Gruber the codes, Gruber kills him. John is within earshot of the Takagi-Gruber convo, and subsequent killing of Takagi, and John, for the first of a few times, just cannot shut the fuck up in this movie. Like, he reacts to Takagi being shot and killed like he's never witnessed an execution-style murder in the heat of passion before. I mean, come on, dude. So the terrorists, of course, realize someone is there, and John flees, and he says to himself that he hopes that his limo driver, Argyle, heard the shots and called for help, but... I don't really understand this, like, they explain Argyle didn't hear it because he was on the phone and jamming out in his limo, you know? But it's like, they're supposed to be several floors up, and even if they were on the first floor, you're not gonna fucking hear anything in a goddamn parking garage where Argyle is. John gets to this floor that's under construction and pulls a fire alarm, and he really thinks that he's got it all figured out, that it's like, He's good to go. He's got the, you know, fire trucks coming and all this stuff. Couple of things about that. I don't understand how the terrorists didn't cut the emergency lines, too. I don't get that. Are they, like, not reachable by conventional means or something? 
And by the way, this fire alarm bit was never going to work. We're only like 35 minutes in. Use your fucking head, John. Haven't you ever seen a fucking movie before? The terrorists cancel the alarm and find out which floor it came from. So we get a pretty sweet showdown with John and a terrorist with John using the different equipment on the floor for misdirection. Obviously, he kills the terrorist because he is our hero, but he can't steal his shoes because the guy's feet are too fucking small. But John writes, now I have a machine gun, ho ho ho, on his sweatshirt and props the guy in a chair and sends him down to the party floor to really alert Hans to John's presence. And Hans is desperate to learn who the mystery party crasher might be. But let me ask you this. Wouldn't John be better off if the terrorists didn't realize he was there causing trouble, really? Like, I guess it's just in his character to throw it in their face like that, but it does make it more entertaining. I will give it that. That's that's something. Then John somehow finds another means of contacting the police through a presumably hardwired channel. So, like... How did this not get cut by the terrorists, too? I just, I still don't understand it. So John talks to the police, and they're dismissive, and they think it's a prank, but they send an officer to check it out. Enter Reginald Vell Johnson as Sergeant Al Powell. You know, I don't really remember the show Family Matters at all, but I remember Steve Urkel being super highbrow, classy humor, real Big Bang Theory-level comedy. There's a shootout on the roof, and... Then there's this scene where John crawls into an air duct from an elevator shaft and he says, now I know what a TV dinner feels like. And this again alerts the terrorists to his presence and I can't help but wonder if maybe talking loudly to yourself at all times is not the best idea when hiding from a fairly large group of bad guys that want you dead. We get a super intense scene where John is in a gunfight with terrorists and he's under this long table and the terrorists stand on top of it and shoot at the entire length of the fucking table to try and kill John. This gunfight is interspersed nicely with Powell coming into the lobby to investigate and not seeing nor hearing anything out of the ordinary. And you see that the terrorists have a man running the front desk. Like, I mean, they... They set that up early on in the movie. Then John realizes the police officer is going to take off, so he throws the terrorist's body onto the police cruiser to get his attention. Which, like, can you fucking imagine if you're Powell casually assuming you've got a non-issue on your hands and you're going to drive away and you're like, holy fucking shit. So we finally get a police presence at Nakatomi, and despite it not being with ideal timing, the terrorists were planning for this, so they're not worried. John actually talks to Hans over a radio he got from a dead terrorist, and Willis and Rickman just fucking kill it with their interactions together. It's really great. Like, it's such a cool hero-villain dynamic, and it ends with John saying yippee Kaye, motherfucker after they talk about how John always preferred Roy Rogers over John Wayne. We actually get a lot of great back and forth between John and Powell as well in this movie throughout by way of the radio. So this real bag-of-shit reporter catches wind of what's going on with this whole Nakatomi situation, and, you know, he's, he's getting into it. He's trying to figure out what's happening. So one cool thing to note is that a lot of people get to talk to each other on the two-way radios, like John, the terrorists, the police, the news. You know, they all kind of get to hear what's going on or speak sometimes. 
This asshole news guy is fucking digging up dirt on John after hearing the radio chatter, and he's a real not likable guy, I guess I'll I'll put it that way. What really builds tension and overall frustration is that Powell seems to be the only cop who believes John, and John is trying to feed valuable information to the police, you know? So, Deputy Chief Dwayne T. Robinson, who is played by Paul Gleason, and he is the vice principal, as I mentioned, in The Breakfast Club. He is particularly opposed to John and is very vocal about it, and he just kind of feels like John could be one of the terrorists just feeding false information or something. It'd be tough for John and the police on the ground because even though we know John's a good guy, The police on the ground should really be cynical and doing what Gleason's character is doing. But the police attack the building using an artillery vehicle that is most definitely not a tank. Like, it almost looks more like the Batmobile from the Dark Knight movies than it does an actual tank. But it looks pretty decent, I guess. They also try and invade the building with four officers that I guess are from like the SWAT team or something. I don't know. But the terrorists are too good for all this. You know, they shut it all down and shoot out the cops' spotlights. And, you know, they were using the spotlights to help them see their way. So it kind of fucked them over. Of course, John and Powell were very vocally opposed to the direct assault on what they knew to be very skilled and knowledgeable terrorists. That's the big struggle throughout this movie. It's just this big back and forth between our good guys and the cops and the terrorists. They're all kind of, you know, trying to exert their will or whatever. So it turns out John is pretty angry at the terrorists for being way too harsh with the police, and so he drops some C4 down an elevator shaft and causes a massive explosion, and it fucking just, oh my god, it's so fucking cool. It it goes all over the fucking place. Of course, it really pisses off Deputy Chief Dwayne T. Robinson because, you know, he doesn't like anything that John does, and it got glass all over the place, and, you know, you can't have glass all over, so there's that. Despite what I said about seeing it through a guy like Robinson's eyes, it is still pretty fucking funny to see John make them look like complete buffoons out there. Meanwhile, our good buddy Ellis, who was caught doing coke at the beginning of this movie, thinks he's had enough because Holly and him know that it's John causing the trouble for the terrorists. Ellis knows the terrorists want to know who John is, and he leads the terrorists to believe that he and John are old pals and that he could be the missing link for them to get at John. But you know, who would have thought lying to a group of terrorists and giving them all the information you have and then losing all real leverage would be a bad idea? So the terrorists kill Ellis, and it's like, darn, I can't believe it, such a likable guy. So now the terrorists know that John is a cop and, you know, they know who he is and all that stuff. And the terrorists finally give some demands to the police outside. And it's like this absurd laundry list of notorious imprisoned criminals that they want released across the world. But it's made pretty clear that they just did this for the show of it. And they're really just looking to get the bearer bonds. They don't really give a shit about anybody getting released from prison. I realize that this technically makes them not terrorists since they're in it for the money, but calling them terrorists is much easier, so I'm going to go ahead and keep doing that. 
The cops are blaming Ellis's death on John, but John tells them there was nothing he could do, and then the FBI arrives and takes over the situation. So we get this killer scene where John happens upon a man we as the audience know to be Gruber, but John doesn't realize that, and Gruber pretends to be a guest who got away from the party and is frankly doing a very shitty American accent. Like, Sometimes the accent's decent, but he lets his Gruber voice slip through quite a bit in my opinion, and I'm not sure if it's on purpose. Basically, John gives Gruber a gun, and if you're a first-time viewer, you're like, oh fuck shit, no, this is not gonna end well. But then John tells Gruber he was invited to the party by mistake, so you know John's not trusting this mystery man too much. Gruber almost immediately goes to shoot John, but the gun isn't loaded because our boy is wicked smart and wasn't going to let some two-bit terrorist leader get the best of him. Gruber wants the detonators that he knows John took off of a dead terrorist, and John has to flee as the elevator dings and it's fucking on. This shootout with the terrorists is fucking amazing. The elevator ding gets its moment a couple of times in this flick. The first time was when John killed the first terrorist on the construction floor. So as we see the newsman getting information on John, the FBI cuts the power, which is apparently standard procedure in a terrorist hostage situation. But Gruber wants this because the loss of power is what opens the final level of the vault locks. Which is pretty good planning on the terrorist part to not only know that the FBI would do that, but that it would get them into the vault just like that. John is trying to figure out why Gruber was upstairs when he ran into him, and he realizes that there are charges rigged to blow on the roof, and John knows that the FBI and the hostages are supposed to be on the roof in due time. John tries to warn them, but naturally it's a little too late, and they don't want to listen to him anyway. Like... I'd really struggle not being a douchebag at this point and be like, hey, I haven't led you guys astray once since I've been talking to you and you give me this shit still? Captain Dickhead Newsman has found John and Holly's house and is interviewing their kids and man, I would be fucking pissed off. This allows Gruber to figure out that not only is John married to Holly, who is now basically the first in command as the voice of the hostages to the terrorists, but... Gruber is now just going to take Holly hostage in a more specific and direct kind of way to use her as leverage against John. I do love the way all of this unfolds and we really see how the media can fuck shit up in a lot of situations. And the seething hatred we feel for this newsman is unparalleled, even rivaling actual terrorists, like seriously. John gets into a close quarters fight with a terrorist and he fucking fucks this guy up and ultimately uses a chain to hang him and it's badass of course. The terrorists are forcing the hostages to go upstairs to the helipad on the roof, which the FBI is en route to in a helicopter. John knows the roof is rigged to blow, so he has to act like a legitimate maniac and fire a machine gun to get the people to go back inside. The terrorists detonate the roof after everyone is back inside and only the FBI agents die, and it's like, oh no, not the arrogant assholes that got like three minutes of screen time before this. Please no, say it ain't so. John has to find a way off the exploding roof somehow, and he opts to tie a fire hose around himself and rappel down the building, which is a great fucking moment in this movie. Like, he is only able to rappel so far down, obviously, because the hose only goes so long, and then he has to crash through a window, and then when he gets inside the window, 
the spool for the fire hose falls and we get a lot of excitement with John dealing with that as he almost gets pulled out of the fucking window he just crashed into. So Argyle, the limo driver, is still down in the garage and he's been like locked in, but he goes over and he crashes into the truck that I think they're supposed to be loading the bearer bonds into and he just like fucking smashes into this truck. It's pretty great. So eventually we get a standoff with John and Gruber who is holding Holly as leverage. So Gruber doesn't know that John has a gun taped to his back when Gruber makes him throw down the one in his hand. Then we get a really intense moment where, you know, like he, John pulls the gun from behind his back and it's like, you know, he, he shoots and it's like he, he hits him. It's not really clear exactly what happens, but it's very exciting and then it, there's this moment where Gruber has Holly and he's like hanging out of a window and they're like trying to get him to let her go. And, you know, you think that he's going to shoot her because he's still got a gun. And it's like all of a sudden he just fucking falls to his death from like several floors up. It's a very cool shot looking down as Gruber falls too. It's it's pretty awesome. Then on the ground in the aftermath, Holly punches the asshole news guy, but one of the terrorists is still alive and goes to kill John. Suddenly he is shot down by our old friend Sergeant Al Powell and... You know, he saves the fucking day. And John and Holly take the limo home. And I've got to say, it's probably a little too smashed up to have on an actual road. You know, like you probably get pulled over if you were driving it. Anyway, that's the end of the fucking movie. I got to say, for praise for this movie, I fucking love the personalities in it. The performances... The pacing is fucking incredible. Never a dull moment in this movie. And the action and the planning, oh man, just masterful. Just really great. For criticism, I just, I honestly want it to keep going on forever and ever and ever. And I don't want it to stop. So that's my only real complaint about this movie. So a little bit of trivia. The film was pitched as Rambo in an office building. The movie bears little similarity to the novel that it's based on, it seems. A lot of the characters and names are different, and the main character in the novel is actually named Joe Leland as opposed to John McClane. The tone of the book was considered much more cynical and nihilistic. The novel was actually a sequel to the 1966 novel, The Detective, which was made into a 1968 film of the same name starring Frank Sinatra. Because of this, they were actually contractually obligated to offer the role in Die Hard to Sinatra, who was 70, and he declined. There were rewrites on the script to better blend action and comedy within the movie and add new scenes. So they, this movie really went through the ringer trying to get it right. I mean, they, they did a lot of stuff to it. The costume department had 17 undershirts in various stages of degradation on hand for Bruce Willis. The film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 2017 for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Little bit of info and ratings. Runtime, 131 minutes. Budget, 28 million. Worldwide gross, 141.6 million. IMDb rating, 8.2. Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 94%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 94%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. 
This is easily one of the greatest action movies, if not the greatest action movie of all time. I fucking love it. I don't think it's overrated at all. I don't think it gets too much praise or anything like that. I really fucking love this one, guys. All right, so... I mean, it is called Brandon at Random for a reason, so we're going to go from the 1988 action movie to the 1995 romantic comedy, While You Were Sleeping, released on April 21st, 1995, directed by John Turtletaub. And my goodness, he has some fucking movies on his resume. He did Three Ninjas, which I enjoyed in my childhood, I think. Cool Runnings about the Jamaican bobsled team, which I don't even dare try and revisit because I guarantee it sucks. He was also the director of Phenomenon with John Travolta, which I seem to remember being pretty mediocre. And then he also did the National Treasure movies. For the writers, we have Daniel G. Sullivan and Frederick LeBeau. Producers, Roger Birnbaum and Joe Roth. For the score, we have composer Randy Edelman. And then the cast, we have Sandra Bullock, who plays Lucy Moderatz. And she was in Demolition Man, previously covered on this podcast. Genuinely terrible movie. The Proposal, which is a solid movie. It's a romantic comedy type, too, but it's like, you know, it's it's pretty decent, and you gotta love Ryan Reynolds, so, you know, I, I enjoy that one. And then she was also in Miss Congeniality, which is the one where she goes undercover to investigate all of these, you know, they're supposed to be killing, like, Miss America or whatever. It's pretty fucking solid. I, I, I think it's a good movie. Then we have Bill Pullman, who plays Jack Callahan, and he was in Spaceballs, which is... You know, I know a lot of people love that movie. I like it too. It's just, I, I don't think it's as good as a lot of Mel Brooks's work. You know, I don't think it stands out as much. He was also in Independence Day. He played the president in that movie. And I do need to go and revisit that one. I haven't seen it in a long time. He was also in a movie called Lake Placid, which was legitimately awful. I mean, just not a good movie at all. Next up, we have Peter Gallagher, and he plays Peter Callahan, and he was in American Beauty in a pretty small role. I still enjoy American Beauty. I haven't watched it since the whole whatnot with Kevin Spacey and all that stuff, so I don't know if I still enjoy it quite as much. He was also in The O.C., which I have never seen a single episode of, and I don't plan to change that anytime soon. Peter Boyle plays Ox Callahan, and you know him from Everybody Loves Raymond. He's Ray's dad. He was Clyde Bruckman in one episode of The X-Files, where I think he won an Emmy for that one, but, I mean, that was a fucking great episode. I love that one. And he was also the monster in Young Frankenstein, and I fucking love Young Frankenstein. I've covered it on this podcast before. It is fucking amazing. And last but not least, we have Jack Warden, who plays Saul, and he was in 12 Angry Men, and you've probably seen him. He's been in a ton of shit. So for the casting notes, the role of Lucy was actually written for Demi Moore. Julia Roberts was offered the role. Nicole Kidman auditioned to play her. The director had considered Jamie Gertz for the role. Harrison Ford and Gina Davis were initially offered this film. A then-unknown Matthew McConaughey tested for the role of Jack, but was dropped because of his Texas accent. The director rejected offers to cast Russell Crowe in the same role. James Spader, Patrick Swayze, 
Pierce Brosnan, Dennis Quaid, and Dylan McDermott were all considered for the role of Jack Callahan. For a plot synopsis, this one's from IMDb. I really struggled thinking of one for this. A hopeless romantic Chicago Transit Authority token collector is mistaken for the fiancé of a coma patient. All right. Let's dive right into this. I have way more notes on this, I think, now than I I just realized that, like, I put way more shit down about this than I did about Die Hard. Wow. All right. Shocking. So anyway, I've only ever seen bits and pieces of this movie before this viewing. Not the whole thing. And, you know, I, I never really, you know, thought much of it. But I, I wanted to check it out for this whole set at Christmas deal. So the opening credits are pretty lacking in creativity. You know, they're they're pretty generic. We get random shots of Chicago, like businesses and landmarks and such. We get voiceover from Lucy, played by Sandra Bullock, and she talks about when she was young with her dad and him telling her that life doesn't always turn out the way you plan. Her and her dad would go off on little adventures and she loved it. You know, it's a cute little backstory if you're into that sort of thing. Back in the present, Lucy fantasizes about this businessman type played by Peter Gallagher that comes by her booth that she's literally never spoken to, but she believes he is the one, you know? If I only had a nickel for every relationship I've had like this, it um, I'd have a shitload of nickels. So she's trying to pull a Christmas tree up from the ground level through her window using a rope and she drops it. And it kind of seems like it'd just be easier to just carry the tree upstairs. But she talks to who I assume is the building superintendent who is hassling her about dropping the tree and, you know, all of the liabilities and all that stuff. Another guy walks in, and he is a caricature of a person. He's a real wise guy type, wearing a tight white shirt over his pudgy body, and has a gold chain, and his name's Joe Jr. Lucy gets asked by her boss to work Christmas, and basically she doesn't have any family left, you know? And so it's kind of like she just gets stuck doing that, but it's like, honestly... You know, it would suck to be that person to have to do that shit for that reason, but it's like, I wouldn't be doing jack shit on Christmas anyway, you know what I mean? So it's like, why not help some other coworkers out that can't work or don't want to work or whatever? So she's sitting in her booth on Christmas, and her mystery man says Merry Christmas to her, and this is her first time talking to him, and she freezes up and doesn't answer, and then when he's out of earshot, she tells him that he's beautiful and has a nice coat and whatnot, and it's kind of weird, which it's like I totally get the freezing up. It's like all the nerves start building up, and you just don't know what to say or do. Suddenly, there's panic as the man she's crushing on has fallen and is laying on the train tracks, and she rushes to help him and struggles at first, but rolls him off the tracks and saves his life. He's taken to the hospital, and I guess she just didn't need to go back to work, so she goes to the hospital to see him right away. They initially won't let her see him because she doesn't know who he is and she's not a family member. And she mutters that she was going to marry him and one of the staffers overhears, assuming that she is his fiance. This ignores the fact that Lucy can't fucking say the guy's name at all. Like, the staffer should have heard that. Like, Lucy didn't know his name at all. Like, I don't even know if they would have let her in before a family member could actually verify who she was, but... I mean, honestly, like, it's pretty fucking iffy. 
Lucy talks to the doctor, and we're to understand that the mystery man is named Peter, and he's in a coma. The family arrives, and they ask what happened to him, and Lucy explains that he was bumped onto the train tracks, and, you know, she basically saved him. And the family wants to know who Lucy is, and the staffer says it's his fiance, and the family is all fucking perplexed by this. And they seem like they're kind of pissed off that they didn't know that this guy was engaged, which is understandable. Away from the family, she explains to the staffer who has been perpetuating the assumption that she's engaged to Peter that she's not actually engaged to him and was just talking to herself. And the staffer tells her that that was a dumb thing to do. But as a person who talks to himself on the regular, I fucking get it. Like, I'm going to fucking talk to myself whether you like it or not, lady. Don't get all high and mighty on me now. They're all sitting and waiting in a room and are clearly eager to learn more about how Lucy met the mystery man, Peter. And Lucy then begins perpetuating the engagement lie herself, telling the story of how the two of them fell in love. Lucy comes back after the family is away to introduce herself and explain herself to a comatose Peter. She doesn't know what to do to get out of this web of lies, and she's clearly desperate and can't get dates because people who look like Sandra Bullock probably struggle super hard with dating. She gets a little emotional about her sad state of affairs, and but it's revealed that Peter's godfather, Saul, overheard Lucy talking the whole time, and so you you don't really know what that means. Like, is he going to tell on her, or is he going to keep the secret? You don't know. But we get a lot of B-roll of Chicago between scenes in this flick, and I don't really love it. It's not very great. Lucy sleeps at the hospital, and in the morning, the whole family comes again, and they seem to keep loving her more, and they invite her to their belated Christmas get-together, but she declines because she has to work. Lucy is explaining the situation to her boss, and wouldn't you know it, he thinks that she's being a little stupid. Lucy goes to the family gathering anyway, and, you know, it's really amusing to think about. Like, as you go through watching this, I read on Wikipedia or IMDb or whatever that this movie was originally written with the genders swapped, but they said it felt too predatory, which it's like, yeah, if you watch it all through that lens, it legitimately becomes a horror movie instead of a silly comedy. So anyway, we're at the family Christmas party, and Saul tries bonding with Lucy before she goes in, but he elects not to tell her that he knows what's going on. She tells Saul about her parents, and we find out for sure that not only did her mom pass away when she was young, but her father succumbed to an illness after moving to Chicago for treatment. She's looking through fucking scrapbooks and photo albums of this dude that she doesn't even know with a family she doesn't know either. It's like, fuck, why are you doing this to yourself? You know it doesn't end well, Lucy. Jesus Christ. I get that she probably longs for the family visits she used to have. We get this moment where Peter's answering machine gets a message of a woman named Ashley who says she's on vacation, but she's cutting it short because she decided, as she puts it, what the hey, I will marry you. Because that's the way you should answer a marriage proposal. On a fucking answering machine and phrasing it like, well, I fucking guess I'll do it. You wore me down. Like, how romantic. Then enters Jack, played by Bill Pullman. Also, I... 
Paul F. Tompkins already pointed this out once on a podcast I was listening to, but please stop acting like you can't tell the difference between Bill Paxton and Bill Pullman. It's ridiculous. Jack sees Lucy sleeping on the couch and is immediately not convinced by Lucy's story, but Lucy tries to keep the lie going anyway. I am reminded now, thinking of Bill Pullman, that the poster for this movie with Sandra Bullock romantically in Pullman's arms is super fucking spoilery. Anyway, the caricature owner of the apartment building, Joe Jr., is asked by Jack if he knows Lucy, and the guy says, know her, I'm dating her, and it's like, He's that fucking delusional. Lucy goes to Peter's place and he has a framed picture of himself at the bar. Who the fuck does that? This could not possibly be a thing. I mean, I have pictures up in my house that have me in them, but I'm with other people. I'm not just putting up fucking pictures of myself alone. Are you kidding me? Anyway, she's trying to feed Peter's cat and... Jack surprises Lucy by showing up at Peter's place. Jack was surprised to learn that Peter even had a cat, so it's kind of like laying the groundwork that maybe Jack doesn't know everything about his brother. But I would think not telling him about a fiancé would require quite the suspension of disbelief, you know? The hospital calls and says it's customary for friends and family to give blood, so Jack and Lucy go and do that, and that's not at all like a date, guys. I know what you're thinking. So they go in to see Peter, and some of the family is there, and Jack starts grilling Lucy about details about Peter, but she says they've only been together for like three months, so how much could she possibly know? That's what makes this all seem so convenient, is like, really, if you had a whirlwind romance, you might not know a ton of stuff about your soon-to-be husband, which is why short-notice weddings between people who only recently met are usually not good. Lucy knows this one detail about Peter from this run-in she had with a friend of his at the hospital that reveals he now only has one testicle, so it satiates the family for the time being. Because it's like, how could she possibly know something like that? You know, something so personal. I mean, I might be starting to believe this whole story could possibly happen. So Saul stops by Lucy's and reveals that he was outside the night she was talking to Peter, so he knows everything, and he tells her not to tell the truth, at least not yet. Saul leaves, and then Jack stops by and says he has an engagement present for Lucy, which is furniture, it's from his parents. Down in the furniture truck, Lucy sees a chair that she really likes, and it turns out that Jack made it, but it's not the present, so... You know, it's actually what she gets for a present is this fucking gaudy-ass couch. Like, it is not my cup of tea, you know? I It looks like it's got, like, a floral pattern on it. I don't, I mean, I know that's probably obvious, but it's just, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, like, floral patterns. So, her and Jack take this ugly-ass couch upstairs, and on their way in, the doorman stops Jack and says that guests need to be announced, and he says that he's with Lucy, and the doorman doesn't know Lucy from Adam. Jack is slowly unraveling these lies of Lucy's, but he doesn't have a full enough case built up to really shut her down. And once they get the couch in, they go down and find that Jack's furniture truck is blocked in. And so they have a romantic little walk to get Lucy home. And you know, if not for the poster for this movie, you wouldn't necessarily be sure what's coming with Jack and Lucy, but 
I mean, you fucking know. So they talk about Lucy's dad, and as I'm watching this movie, I mean, as dumb as this premise is, it's an endearing movie. Like, I've enjoyed it thus far, you know? And the humor is good, and there's good chemistry between Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman. So anyway, Lucy is having a crisis now, as she realizes that she likes Jack, but they all think that she's engaged to Peter, so she can't just come clean because it'd break their hearts. Jack is at the hospital playing cards with Peter, and he confesses that he also has a thing for Lucy to his comatose brother, which it's like, what a brave fucking gesture to come clean to your brother like that, you know? You're comatose brother. Over dinner with the family and Lucy, they ask Lucy about finding a gal for Jack, and he has to act like Lucy's not his type. Jack and Lucy share a kiss under the mistletoe in what is always an awkward situation. Like, I've never actually had it happen personally, but I always imagined it would be super uncomfortable to get caught under the mistletoe, especially even if you held out like a 1% chance that it's really your brother's fiance. What I would have loved is if he went fucking all in on a kiss with her, you know what I mean? If he would have really gotten into it, it would have been fucking great. But if there's one thing that I want you to take away from this, it's that mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it, but a kiss can be even deadlier if you mean it. So then when Lucy's at work, one of the younger girls of the family stops at her booth and reveals to Lucy's co-worker about the engagement thing, And then through a misunderstanding, the family now thinks that Lucy is pregnant, and at that point, I was like, if she doesn't just say no to that one, I'm gonna be fucking irritated. Joe Jr. comes by to give Lucy a present, and she declines and lets him down easy, but if there's one thing that this Joe Jr. guy needs, it's not to be let down easy. But Jack has come by Lucy's apartment and overhears and sees the convo with Joe Jr., Lucy then catches Jack as he's leaving, and she's going to a party, so he gives her a ride. Jack comes into the party and tells Lucy that she shouldn't drink because of the baby in front of fucking everyone, which, like, yeah, why wouldn't you fucking say that in front of everybody? Like, I... I would feel like you'd want to be pretty fucking sure. As they're walking out of the party, things get very flirty between Jack and Lucy, and Jack mentions seeing her with Joe Jr. Lucy gets annoyed with Jack and takes things he's saying a little too personally, as it's clearly not how he means them, and he's just trying to be nice. And So then, on New Year's Eve, Peter awakens from his coma... So everyone rushes down to see him, and Lucy is desperately trying to downplay her presence in the room by hiding behind people. As Peter looks at everyone's faces, Lucy is the only one that he doesn't recognize. They all think he has select amnesia, and I'd like to know what percentage of head injuries ever result in bouts of amnesia at all of any kind. And better yet, I'd love to know how common select amnesia is in those cases. They try and jog Peter's memory, seeing if they can get him to remember Lucy, and Saul says that he's going to tell the family about Lucy, but he's beating around the fucking bush a lot. And I just don't really understand why Lucy thinks it would go over well coming from Saul. I mean, I get her not wanting to come clean herself at this point, but what the fuck does she honestly expect to have happen? Jack sort of apologizes to Lucy for all the things that he's done, and, you know, he takes her home. I feel like Lucy could have totally taken this opportunity to tell the truth to Jack, but she doesn't. We get Peter Boyle, and he's criminally underutilized in this movie. He's not in it enough, and basically Jack and and him, you know, because 
Peter Boyle is is Peter and Jack's dad. And Jack and his dad finally have this convo that Jack's been meaning to have about branching out with his own furniture business outside of the one that his dad owns. His dad responds positively and just wishes that he would have said something sooner, which I feel like this whole coming clean thing is almost an overriding narrative in this film. Back at the hospital, Peter is demonstrating how excellent his memory is with the exception of Lucy. Saul talks to Peter about how great Peter is, but he says that Peter is a putz. He tries to get through to him about Lucy and tries to get him to recognize how great she is. We get an alone conversation with Lucy and Peter, and he's clearly trying to forge a connection and do as Saul suggested. If I were in this scenario, I don't know what the fuck I'd do. Like, Sandra Bullock is one of the few female celebrities I've never had a thing for. Like, she's attractive, but, like, I just have never had a thing for her. But I know what would really happen. Like, my overall suckiness with talking to women would kick in, and that'd handle the situation pretty well. Anyway, they talk to each other, and there's no romantic chemistry whatsoever. This Ashley woman from the answering machine earlier shows up at Peter's apartment building, and the doorman reveals to Ashley's shock that she is not actually his fiance. Peter and Jack talk a bit about Lucy in the hospital. Jack is clearly in love with Lucy, and Peter is kidding himself into believing he could love her, but it's such an uncomfortable situation that has come about here. Lucy runs into Saul, and she finds out that he hasn't told the Callahan family the truth about her yet. So she says that he's fired because she's had enough of his shit because he's clearly never going to help her out with telling them. And it's like, yeah, you really shouldn't have counted on that, Lucy. Like, get real. We then get Ashley confronting Peter at the hospital about his new fiance, and we find out that Ashley had literally moved to Portugal after his proposal, and Peter assumed that meant that she wasn't interested in him, strangely enough. Ashley storms out, and I'll be honest, I kind of expected that all to happen in front of the family for the excitement and confusion, but it didn't. They just, it's just Ashley and Peter talking, and it's that's it. Peter then officially proposes to Lucy, and she is flummoxed. And now would be a fucking great time, Lucy, a terrific time to come clean. She's trying on a wedding dress when Jack stops by to see her. He gets her a present, which is a snow globe, which appeals to Lucy's desire to travel. Jack says that Peter is a very lucky guy and goes to leave, and Lucy asks him before he's gone if there's any reason she shouldn't marry Peter, and Jack says no. But, okay, stay with me. What if in this moment, Lucy just explained the whole story with what happened and how she really loves Jack, and doesn't even know Peter at all. I don't know that it would go over super well or be as theatrical, of course, but still. So Lucy is giving out wedding invitations, and she hands one to her boss, and she explains what's going on. She's visibly upset that Jack seemingly didn't want her, but I must remind you that even if you're in love with someone, when you find out that they're engaged to your sibling, then it kind of makes you not want to say how you feel. Lucy and Peter are going to get married in this fucking hospital wedding chapel, like they couldn't wait a little fucking while to get married anywhere else, seriously. As the dude starts the ceremony, Lucy immediately objects, and then Jack objects. Lucy comes clean about the whole thing, and tells all about not knowing Peter and loving Jack, and the family takes it fairly well, at least initially. 
Ashley comes and also objects. We find out that she's already married and her husband objects to her objection. Peter apparently proposed to a married woman. So Lucy is back at her apartment and Joe Jr. stops by to console her and he ultimately has to be consoled for his love life and it's like, yeah, I know that feel, bro. We find out that Lucy is quitting as a token collector and then Jack comes and proposes to Lucy at her booth by dropping an engagement ring in the token tray. So Lucy marries Jack instead of Peter and she realizes that her dad was right about things not going as we plan in life and that's like the whole message of this movie is things aren't gonna go exactly like we plan. So praise for this movie. The chemistry between Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman is pretty great. It's got a nice light sense of humor. It's not like laugh out loud hysterical or anything, but it's a pretty solid one. The stupidity of the plot is indeed endearing for some reason, and I don't know why. My only criticism is that she needed to fucking tell everyone what was really going on right away and not let it carry on for so fucking long, but that's pretty obvious, I think. So for trivia, only a couple of things. In a transition scene, a paperboy is shown slipping off his bike. This was actually an accident, but they decided to keep it in the movie. In fact, the paperboy actor actually broke his wrist. The film wasn't originally supposed to be a Christmas movie. The studio wanted it set during the holidays as it would be easier to sell. And the only other tidbit I had about this movie was that whole thing about how it was originally written where it was... The, the genders were swapped and it was, you know, it was going to be a guy in the Lucy role. And so it was like, it became this very predatory thing in the eyes of filmmakers. And they're like, we don't like this. This isn't funny. And so I just, I find that fucking hysterical because it's really true. I mean, like it would have been fucking terrifying. So for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 94 minutes, a budget of $3.3 million, worldwide gross $69.6 million, IMDb rating 7.9, Rotten Tomato Critics Score 90%, Rotten Tomato Audience Score 88%, personal rating 3.5 out of 5 stars, I really would not have thought I would have given it that high of a score, but it's pretty decent. I could watch it again and not be pissed about it. That's how I'll put it. So thanks everybody for tuning into my set at Christmas episode. I hope you enjoyed it. There is at least one more, well, either one more has come out or one more to come. I'm not really sure. They're both already, you know, on the docket. I just don't know how I'm going to release them. So, all right. Well, I hope you guys reach out to me if you have requests or you have suggestions or things like that. And within reason, I'd be happy to entertain them. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr. 